Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. So my name is Brian Alzate. This is the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I got a very, very uh, close friend of mine, Ray. I'm extremely grateful for you, Ray, no matter what. You know, I've known you since I got clean. Since I've been clean or since I've been sharing my story, I rarely don't mention you. You know, you are somebody that, uh, like, the the first time I heard your story, I remember being probably three, four months clean. I heard you speak, and I just remember the first time hearing you speak, going home and thinking, I can get clean. You know, this was somebody who was a heroin addict, career, dope and coke, IV drug addict. And uh, I remember you said that a couple of times, like, I'm an IV, heroin, coke shooting, homeless junkie. For 20 years plus living in Washington, D.C., and you shared that you had five years clean. And there's a lot of things that you said that stuck with me. And one of them was that you said, um, I'd rather die right here, right now, clean, than to ever go back to using. You know, I'd rather get struck by lightning right now than to ever use again. Another thing you said was, if you ask me to get high, I'm going to say no. And if you ask me to get high again, I'll punch you in the face. And some of those things that you said just, was very clear that the person who was speaking wanted to stay clean and was going to stay clean come hell or high water and that they were serious about their recovery. And since then, I've been following you around and having you speak for me all over the place. You've helped thousands of addicts. Um, I know you've made a difference in my recovery. And um, even 12 years later, you know, if I had to, if I had to uh, pick out someone who was like a father figure in, uh, in recovery, it would be you. You know, so, you know, I'm just extremely grateful for people like you that were there for me that, you know, when I was just a snot nosed 17 year old kid who didn't know what staying clean was about, you know, you were someone who was always there, you know, spreading that knowledge and showing me unconditional love and and no bullshit. You know, it was very work the steps or die, motherfucker, get clean, no fucking excuses if it was the fucking bag of dope, you'd make it happen. If I, you know, if I want to know where to go cop, we'll ask you. So I appreciate that, man. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your story and uh, and we'll get into it, man. Wow. Thanks, Brian. Um, thank you. I appreciate all those kind words. I really do. I uh, wasn't even expecting all that and I didn't even know we were live. So you caught me off guard there. But uh, yeah, I'm an addict. And I'm a recovering addict. I'm grateful to be clean. My name is Ray, and um, and this is it. And uh, I mean, I guess I'll start at my clean date, which is ten eleven oh three. There's like for me, there's like everything that happened up till then, and then there's everything that's happened since then. It's kind of like the sort of like the the marker with the like the uh, B C and A D, so to speak. But the reason why my, I uh, I have to announce my clean date is because it's 
probably the thing that I cherish most. Not probably, it is. Without it, I have zero. I mean, I'm not confused about it. I just, I'm not, I don't say that to echo some other NA guy or because it sounds clever or catchy. You know, I, I truly don't think I have another one. Like, I think that there's like a some kind of cosmic roulette wheel. And every time we go out there, we're spinning that wheel. And for some people, it, it lands on their number again. And for some of us, it doesn't. But I spun that wheel from 1992 until 2003 and it would never land on my number so i was just just in and out in and out of treatments in and out of like the 30-day jail sentences sometimes 45 days sometimes i'd get six weeks at some treatment center and and it was all the different models of treatment through the 90s whether it was the social model detox or whether it was the medical educational variety or whether it was the therapeutic community or the behavior modifications or the you know, the farms i mean there was a variety of different treatments that i tried from a variety of different perspectives and a variety of different philosophies when did you start going to treatment 92 so february 23rd 1992 was your first treatment was my first time i uttered these words to someone consequential if you let me go right now i'm probably going to be high within a few hours and that mm. was judge ryan in the circuit court in rockville maryland and um he took me at my word he put me in jail for about four weeks and then while i was in jail during that four weeks they just luckily were opening a brand new a county-run detox slash rehab, and it was opening January 1st. So by February 23rd, they were just starting to put clients in there. So the judge didn't know much about the place, I guess. So he didn't send me straight over there. But I did go over there, and I got there with about four weeks clean because I had sat in jail for four weeks, and they didn't give me anything because they just don't up there, or they didn't then anyway. So I was pretty much detoxed. But when I got there, I do remember some very clear things. One, at that point, I'd been an IV user since uh, 1981. How did you start using? Because I know when you speak, you don't really, you don't really get into it. It's just basically, you know, I started shooting dope and, and yeah. that's it. Well, you know? the using started. So, okay, that attempt to get clean, that first introduction was in 92. My introduction to heroin was in 81. Wow. And that was in New York City. And I was in a band at the time. I was, I was, I came out of my mom's womb a natural-born drummer. Mm -hmm. And then, by the time I was in my late teens, early twenties, I was gigging a lot in a lot of different bands around DC. I never knew that. Wow. Yeah, and then I had uh, migrated to New York. And while I was in New York, I was gigging in a lot of bands up there. And one of my bands up there, I was the drummer in, and we had uh, somehow got on the roster to play Christmas Eve night at cbgb's on a roster with a whole lot of other bands this is 1981 82 i'm not sure which year but i'm pretty sure it was the same year that the, the rolling stones song called uh, waiting on a friend that was making the rounds on mtv a lot and the reason i point that out is because from that video i knew where to find heroin <laughs> So what happened was at the time I wasn't using heroin. I was using everything but, and I was drinking a lot, extent to the point that I needed. At that point, I qualified for treatment, and I was already experiencing like physical symptoms of way too much alcohol and cocaine and other things. But I was definitely not open to the idea of getting clean. 
because it was like a big party. Everything was one big giant party at that time, and we weren't thieving that much yet. It was just gigging, gigging, gigging. And then because I had a, uh, and at that point, I was cutting hair too because I grew up around hair salons. My mom's a hairdresser, so I knew how to make money. So and that, and that led to me getting kicked out of four high schools and getting a GED when I was a year ahead of schedule. And then so academia, books, all that was not for me. It was not part of my vocabulary or my, it wasn't part of my future and it wasn't part of my day-to-day life. I, I didn't want structure, authority, none of that. I just, I knew how to make a few bucks. I knew how to gig. I knew how to, everything kind of was on a silver platter. And, but my biggest pet peeve were the heroin addicts because every time we'd have a band and one of, one of the heroin addicts would show up, they would show up late or they'd show up sick and they wouldn't want a gig. And that was kind of like ironic that I ended up using heroin because I hated everything about it and everyone <laughs> that was involved with it. So we're in New York. I've got these two girls and uh, that are in a band with me in D.C. and this kid named Chris on drums. At that t- and somehow I, I was now a guitar player as well. We ended up in New York, and this is CBGB's, and this is a big deal. It's like the early 80s. A lot of celebrity types were going to be there, and it was, it was like a dream coming true. And they didn't want to play because they were dope sick. Hmm. Now, they wanted to go home to D.C. They were like, we're leaving. We don't want to do this. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, what the fuck? Are you fucking out of your fucking minds? I mean, this is what everyone's trying to do. We're on the roster. So inevitably, we were sitting in a Chinese restaurant down on 2nd Avenue, and I knew that we were right around the corner or very close to St. Mark's Bar and Grill. And how did I know that? Because Keith Richards goes there in the video. So I'm figuring if they're hanging out there, there's got to be dope there. So, and it was only about a block or two away. So I walked down there. I walked in. Some, so I, I looked around. It was very easy to figure out. There wasn't much to figure out. I just handed the kids some money, he handed me a couple bags of dope. I took them back to the Chinese restaurant and I was sitting there drinking sake and judging the shit out of them and pissed off. And anyway, these two like slinky, broken down, emaciated girls went to the restroom and they were gone about however long, 10 minutes, but I'm not even fucking kidding you. When they came back out, their makeup was perfect. Their hair was perfect. They were all full of life and smiling. There's, they just something like the transformation between the dope two. Dope sick to high. Yeah, the dope sick to what, I guess it got my attention, and there was just a little bit left. And I was like, fuck it. And then, snorted it? No, nah, I went straight in the bathroom, stuck my arm out, and cat hit me, and that was the end of that. Wow. That was the beginning. At that moment, cost me 20 years. Mm-hmm. That moment cost me 20 years. The first three years of that, I was willing to pay it because instantly I didn't drink. I mean, immediately. I, was, I, I didn't have any desire for alcohol or anything else. And the payoff was reasonable. It was like a $10 to $20 a day maintenance habit for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And it seemed consequence-free, but I didn't realize that that's the insidiousness of narcotics, unlike all the other drugs. Narcotics takes them a good year or two to really root in to every single nook and cranny of your life, your psyche, your mm-hmm. your soul. Your It doesn't just hit you like crack. You smoke crack on Monday, and Friday you're like, what the fuck happened? Yep. So you can regroup if you have to. But with opiates, you don't know this, and that's why... It's even more insidious when it's coming from a doctor or a clinician. 
because you're just taking them as prescribed, thinking, oh, this is all great. Mm-hmm. Four years later, something happens. And and by that point, there's no walking that one back. There's simply no walking it back. So, uh, And I kind of knew that going into it. I wasn't naive. I'm not going to sit and tell you, oh, I didn't know what happened. I knew exactly. Well, I didn't know exactly what I was signing up for, but I knew I was signing up for something. So that's what happened. We did the gig, and everything was great and all, but, you know, that worked for about three and a half or four years. Eventually, we were in, back in D.C. because I was living in D.C., but kind of back and forth between the two cities. One night, dead of winter, I rode my motorcycle across town to cop some dope. Heroin is dope. Whenever I say one, it's the other, and the other mm-hmm. is the one. But it was freezing, and I mean, I was leathered up to the point I had about 14 layers of clothes. And I go down to cop. It's real quick. I pull into the alley. I hand the kid the money. He hands me a couple bags. I stick them in my glove. Boom, bam. And I drive back. The whole thing was about 15 or 20 minute turnaround time. So when I get home, dope sick. And I sit down at the table. I start throwing clothes off and I peel it off. and I throw the, the, the dope on the table. And it was, it was powder coke. I'm like, what the fuck? So now I had to re think all this i had to suit back up go back downtown get what i needed to get to stop being sick i come back and you know i got well and uh of course the uh, powder cook started talking and it was like well you just let me go to waste you're just gonna let me sit here mm-hmm. and so then the next big idea which was was why don't i just dump it all into one big batch and shoot the coke and then sure and then at that moment That might have been like 1986, Hmm. where it instantly became like a round-the-clock thief. Were you smoking crack before that? Yeah, yeah. we were smoking crack in Washington Square Park in like 1979. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It was like But that that. was the beginning of speedballing. Yeah, but that was the beginning of speedballing. But that was also the beginning of a full-time life of crime, because at that point, there was no more showing up for work. I couldn't make money fast enough. And it was just, you know, just, and the only thing I could do that I could come up with were quick, you know, licks. I, I wasn't going to be the guy that plans this big caper that's going to involve a lot of moving parts. It was like, see something, take it, sell it, see something, you know, and I couldn't turn it off. Yeah. So that's when, you know, everything kind of goes in plateaus. Once you hit that, there's no walking that one back. Mm-hmm. And you never anticipate these things going. When I was 14 or 15, we were smoking weed, you know, get a case of beer, out by the lake, cutting school, listening to Led Zeppelin. Nobody's getting hurt. It seemed fine. Like, you never picture that eventually I'm going to be a full-time thief, mm-hmm. hocking all of my guitars. I had, like, 14, like, really wizard pieces that all to, you know, all everything's gone. Yeah, I always tell people that, you know, like, when I was a kid, I mean, my friends were smoking weed. If some old guy would have came around the bushes and been like, hey, you're going to die in seven years. You're going to be addicted to opiates. You're going to go to treatment 15 times. You're going to go to prison. And maybe one of you will stay clean. We would have thought he was crazy. Yeah, of course. I remember an old dude with abscesses. Me and kept me and Didi, the girl that I'm referring to, we were in this some alley behind a, a subway sub shop. Who knows where? It was snowing, and we found this little cubby hole, and it was this old timer, real old. When I say old timer, I mean like in his sixties, and I'm fifty eight years old. So this guy, <laughs> but he was around the clock full time junkie for years, covered with abscess. And I remember looking at him, and I said, "What the fuck?" You know, he said, "You know, once you get one." You'll get one every time after that. And I was thinking, man, if that ever happened to me, I'd definitely quit using. Yeah. You know, and a year later, (laughs) 
Did it detour me? No. I mean, but then I also emphasize a lot, especially when I'm working with others, that whether I wanted to use or didn't want to use had nothing to do no, with whether to, or not I was going to use I mean, That matter. was going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So my ability to access my own free will was severed. Like so that, that is Which what, is interesting because a lot of times people go to treatment and they're like, oh, well, I want to be here or I don't want to be here or he doesn't even want to be here. Doesn't even matter. No. Nah. Whether you want to get clean or not is not even uh, that important at that point in time. You're doing the same thing everyone else is doing, whether you wanted to do it or don't want to do it. Yeah. Just like uh, when you're using, there are people like, because when you're using, there are people who are talking about getting clean. Right. That guy might not even get clean. You know, yeah. like the guy talking about getting clean all the time, the one person who has no intention on getting clean might be the person to get clean. Yeah. That's um, why I say it's a roulette wheel. Like your clean date happens on a roulette wheel. Some cosmic roulette wheel, it, on that day it spun and it landed on your number. Mm-hmm. Because even, well, I know we see it all the time. In and out, it's like the revolving door. I don't ever judge any admission. I mean, if it takes a thousand, do it because that's the one. But I know that the effort is there. And I think it's recognized there is a God watching all this, and they see he sees your heart, but he also, but we also, for some reason, we underestimate how vicious narcotics really are. We don't give them enough credit, and same with alcohol as well, we're all drugs for that matter, but the obsession and the compulsion to use when it's on an addict, mm-hmm. I mean, unless you've actually experienced it, there's no describing it to anyone. Even if I try to describe it to someone, it's impossible to describe, but that severing of our ability to access our own free will is indescribable. That is, when we talk about restoration of sanity, the insanity of addiction, and even, I'll quote the basic text, the most obvious insanity of our disease is the obsession to use drugs. And if you isolate that sentence and do a thesis on that, you could, because what it's saying I think is, it further goes to say, despite negative consequences. Yeah, that, and through there, that, yeah, it, does the, it also talks about doing the same thing ever and ever, getting, getting different results. That's all clever verbiage to fill a page, but you could erase everything else and just study what that concept, that idea, what that means in relation to step two. The most obvious insanity of our disease is the obsession to use drugs therefore the contrapositive of that would be what the most obvious restoration to sanity would be losing the obsession to use drugs so step two honestly is probably the most miraculous and remarkable thing that could ever happen to an addict and i believe that most addicts that i work with out here who have that five to seven ten years a lot of them are in step two like they've lost the desire to use. The obsession is gone. The compulsion is gone. They're making great decisions for themselves. They're just good decision makers. They're not experiencing, you know, they're having, they're dealing with life's on life's terms and they're okay with where they're at and never even really scraping step three because they haven't had enough reason to. The only reason anyone would actually turn their will and life over to the care of God as they understood him is because that in step two, you feel like a, a, you're, you're running on the treadmill of life mm-hmm. and you run out of ideas and then the, then the thought comes, well, fuck it, maybe I should get high. And then you're stuck. So I've seen addicts get to that place. And it's the most beautiful, another most beautiful place you can be in recovery is where there's got to be more to life than going to work and paying right. bills. And, right. And there's got, and not only that, but how do I fix this emptiness? I mean, I've dumped all the money. You know, you hear the money, the property, the prestige, the sex, you start to acquire all these things. And I'm still like, 
I'm still not, I'm not grabbing something. There's, there's something missing. It's almost like Neo in the Matrix. Like, you know, there's something more. And, but, and so you hear the, sometimes on these TV talk shows, like there's this major celebrity athlete with five Super Bowl rings. Mm-hmm. He's being interviewed and he says, yeah, Chuck, you know, I had it all. The, the money, the property, uh, endorsements, the supermodel wife. I was sitting in Fiji on one of my private islands and I was in my garage in one of my Ferraris. And I'll tell you, Frank, in the midst of all that, at the peak of my career, I had a nine millimeter Glock in my mouth. I was about to blow my fucking brains out, Frank. Damn, Jim, with all that fame and fortune, yeah, I was hollow and empty inside. Then what'd you do? I prayed and I found Jesus. Bam. Mm-hmm. And then the story goes. Yeah. But that's not an uncommon thing. The more we dump in there, the more we need. Mm-hmm. So we start the kind. So there's the whole paradox of recovery. And that's why when the pain is great enough, mo- many of us, not all of us, but when the pain comes, many of us have said, take my will in my life, guide me in my recovery and show me up. Not because that's NA's catch buzz prayer, but life recovery clean is going to bring you to that place where you're going to have a question that can't be answered. You're doing all the right things, but not your mom, not your psychiatrist, not your probation officer. No one's going to be able to answer that. You got that moment where it's, Lieutenant Dan moment where he's in in the hurricane saying, kill me or fix me. Let's get back to the story. So you go to treatment the first time in 92. Yeah. So after those years of all that, I go to treatment in 92. And ironically, it was beautiful because during that four weeks of treatment, I got introduced to, I got reintroduced. I'd heard of NA, but I did everything to avoid it because in DC, NA was already a thing. Because one of the first worlds happened there. So it was already bumper stickers and T-shirts were everywhere. But that was like the anti-everything about, I didn't want nothing to do with those people. Although I knew I was going to end up there somehow. So in 92, my lawyer picked me up because I had a lawyer. And he drove me to the treatment center. And I remember thinking, fuck this place. And then I I already knew that I wasn't going to stay. Even though I had a court order, I knew I wasn't going to be able to stay because I thought the obsession was going to take me right out the back door. So in retrospect, I've learned, I can see that the obsession had been lifted already. The miracle of recovery was given to me then. So I just remember that when we buzzed that door, this really pretty girl showed up to the front door to let me in. And it was clear she was a few months pregnant. She gave me a little hug. She, she greeted me. She welcomed me. She asked me if I had any cigarettes. Did I need cigarettes? And I was like, what the fuck? Man, just, you know, all of a sudden, life instantly got better. And she took me in the kitchen. There was two safe plates, and we ate. And then come to find out, she was another client. I thought she was like a staff. Mm-hmm. In my first week, I had every, all the attitude of the street. The anarchist kind of fuck this and fuck that, and who the fuck you looking at? It was all facade. But I still had it. But I remember being on a couch with my feet up on the couch, my sunglasses on, my little cigarette behind my ear. And this guy, some guy with a clipboard walks past me and he's going outside to smoke cigarettes. He goes, hey, uh, hey, dude, listen, man, you might want to take your feet off the furniture. And I was like, fucking feet off the fuck. Get the fuck out of here. The fuck are you? And I, I, I berated him. I chewed him out, cussed him out. You know, three minutes later, some therapist came around the corner and said, Mr. Gigliata, I need to see you in my office. She gave me like a 500-word essay on why you don't put your feet on other people's furniture, why you don't wear glasses and sunglasses. And So I wrote the essays because I didn't want to get go back to jail. 
And then the next seven days, I was still doing all that behavior. Only if I saw Mr. Clipboard guy, I would kind of self-correct just not to give him the satisfaction of being the one to tell me to do anything. And so the third week, I wasn't doing much much of that behavior because now I had peers and we were all laughing all the time and everything was fun and we were going outside and playing grab ass. I probably had a little girlfriend in there. My behavior had shifted to the point that I wasn't concerned about Mr. Clipboard. But then, ironically, the fourth week, guess what? They gave me a fucking clipboard. So now I'm walking around with a clipboard, <laughs> and then naturally I'm going outside to smoke a cigarette. I had to cut through that little hallway. Guess what? There's this guy on the couch, and he just came over from the jail. And I'm like, dude, not for nothing. You might want to take your feet off the furniture. <laughs> and you know, you know what he said to me, right? Yeah, fuck you. Who the fuck are you? Get the fuck out of my face, you hot motherfucker, blah, blah, blah. The whole thing came at me. But then I realized that that guy for four weeks ago, he wasn't trying to break my balls. He was giving me a heads up that I was about to get. And sure enough, that guy got the same consequences I got. But in four weeks, the transformation happened. I can't even deny that. But that's a true to God story. And did that keep me clean? No. But, mm-hmm. but it did jar. It did leave a mark because I, I never went back to using this. And so. I always relate like uh, staying clean to working out. Like if you sign up for a 90-day boot camp, the boot camp works. But after the boot camp, they're going to tell you, okay, when you get out of here, eat right, go to the gym. And if you don't do those things, you might as well yeah. not even have gone to the boot camp. Exactly. You know what I mean? Because they're not going to be there the whole time. And treatment and getting yeah. clean is the exact same thing where like you can have that aha moment. And it's great for a little boost and you can have like the spiritual awakening or you can not have it and not even want to get clean. But eventually you're going to have to take responsibility for your own uh, routine yeah, of yeah. getting better. And if you don't have a gym, you better work out outside. And if you don't have fucking weights, you better make some shit or like yeah. at one point you got to make your recover your own responsibility. And if it's not going to be a priority. It ain't going to last. That's right, man. And it's funny. Ironically, in order to get your certificate from that treatment center, you had to memorize and recite mm-hmm. the four goals of treatment, which were, one, to learn about the nature of your disease. Two, learn how to spot the symptoms of your disease. Three, learn how to treat your disease. And four, ultimately, take personal responsibility for your own recovery. Disease, any disease, you can insert hepatitis, HIV, breast cancer. Same thing. Right. The more you know about what you're dealing with, one, the less mystifying it is. So you've already demystified and you're starting to see what you're working with. Once you learn what certain signs and symptoms of that thing are, things that happen aren't as random. And you start to say, wait a minute, my eyes are getting blurry and I feel a little... If you're diabetic, that may have been a mysterious thing to you until you know now that, wait a minute, that's a symptom. Let me check my sugar above. And once you know how to treat it, in our case, if, I'm, if I see myself lying to two or three people about some weird shit, it could be anything. I know I better get to it. I mean, I know that as soon as I start lying, if I'm taking full responsibility for my recovery... I got to self-diagnose constantly. It's really what my life is. It's an ex- exercise. Just like someone with diabetes right. checks their blood pressure once it's a day. I need to do an inventory. I need to do these exercises. I need to do my stupid little gratitude list. Yeah. I need to call my sponsor. I need to help a newcomer. Like yeah. I need to do these little things. And that's why Protect Your Clean Date. I know it's like, you know, people snicker sometimes, but I'll, I'll stop people in the middle of a meeting from four years ago, I say, what's your job? They'll say, protect my clean date. And we both laugh because it's just a catch, a little catchphrase. I, and I think it's interesting people that don't know their clean date. I, I know uh, people that are getting clean and they're like, oh, I'm not really focused on the date. I'm like, bro, you better know your fucking clean. Like to me, my clean date is very important. Yeah. I, I don't celebrate my birthday. I stop celebrating my birthday. Like I really only focus on 
my clean date. I know I had a friend the other day call me and he's like, hey, man, I think it was my eight years a couple days ago. I totally forgot. My mom reminded me. I was like, I just don't live that way. Like to me, I'm thinking about making it one more day until I get another year clean. And I know my clean date. Just like if I had kids, I would know exactly where my kids were. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's exactly an analogy that I use a lot of times. Ha- make, you know, protecting my clean date is the same as a, the assignment would be. Let's say you said to me, Ray, will you uh, babysit my two and a half year old uh, daughter? Mm-hmm. To what extent would I protect that kid? You know what I mean? I'm not going to just leave her laying exactly. around. I'm going to put her on the hood of my car and just take her to some strip club or drop her off mm-hmm. at the fucking grocery store. I got to protect that kid with my life above and beyond because it's another life. So I'm just not haphazard with my cleaning. I think of it like a, even if it were a lottery ticket, I wouldn't just leave it on the dashboard of my car with the windows open. <laughs> exactly. It's a fucking $3 million lottery ticket. I mm-hmm. protect the shit out of it. I also know that the most of society is geared to trying to strip me of my clean date. You mm-hmm. know, I tell people in here all the time, with my little URP badge or whatever, mm-hmm. I could walk right into that liquor store and put a fifth of Johnny Walker on the counter. Do you think that the sales clerk is going to stop me? No. Excuse me, sir, aren't you supposed to be a recovery? Oh, wait a minute. No, they don't give a fuck about my clean date. Even at Publix, there's that little Scandinavian lady with the hors d'oeuvres at the end of the counter. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, Sonny, you want to try one of these? You know what? Right next to her, there's little miniature shot glasses of wine. She's mm-hmm. not helping me protect my clean date. She wants me to fuck up my clean date. Now, she's mm-hmm. not malicious, mean-spirited. Or they have no idea. You can explain to someone your whole story and they're like, well, you look fine now. Yeah, you look great now. You, you still got to go to those stupid-ass meetings. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just have like a little bit? Yeah. You know? So, and what I, like, I was at dinner the other day with uh, a couple months ago with these people and, and I was telling them that, you know, I'm in recovery and I don't drink. And, and she's like, well, you know, do you ever feel like drinking a little bit? And I was like, my relationship with using drugs or alcohol is demonic. Yeah. It's obsessively crazy and insane. It would be like asking someone who used to cut themselves, you ever feel like cutting yourself a little bit? Yeah. You know, like I don't drink the way that you drink. Like I don't use yeah. the way that someone else does. The minute that I use, it becomes instantly, I know in my heart, insanely yeah. uh, The obsession fire. comes back and the compulsion clicks. And I don't even really want to drink. I want to smoke crack. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the other buzz line. The other what's, one. At the bottom, what's at the bottom of every beer? The crack $5 bottle. piece of crack. You know, and these are, and they people snicker and joke, but, but you know, some truisms are just that because they are. I mean, for most alcoholics, what's at the bottom of every beer? Another fucking beer. It's going to be there. You know, so part of. So what happens in 1992 to ni- uh, 2003? So from 1992. Talk about, you know, like, like the hip slick cool kid that had his feet up on the couch to what, what happened to Ray in 2003. So what happened when I got out? So I was recommended to me to go to aftercare, halfway living. I'm sure they laid out a real solid plan for me to stay clean. At the time, I was a young thanks, guy. Thanks, but no thanks. I, exactly. I was 32, <laughs> 33 years old. I had a girlfriend at home. I mean, I was at that point, I wasn't like homeless shooting dope on the street, Ray. I was like a different version of Ray. I still was keeping it together to some degree. I had all the trappings of, you know, that social acceptability stuff. So I was like, thanks for all the help. I got this. I know what I got to do. I got to get a sponsor. I'm going to have a home group. I'm going to do some service. And I gave him the spiel that we all hear a million times. So, you know, of course, you know, I went home and naturally within a few months, you know, me and her weren't living together. And, you know, when we're clean and young like that, like, and you're a perfect example of it, 
you know, we excel and accelerate so fast and we recover so quick. Like all of a sudden within four months, you know, I had this Nissan 240SX that I got right off the lot on my own signature. I had a couple of checking account, a bank account. And, you know, I did everything to prop myself up to look like a respectable, honest human being. And I am a, an honest person. I have integrity. When I'm shooting dope, none, all that's out the window. But the inner self of Ray, I'm a good person. So when I'm clean, it's easy to kind of like excel in those different areas. But the trap is that once you have all that stuff, you know, it's easy to forget the pain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then that moment comes where the only thing between you and that drink is going to be the guy to your understanding. And that happened to me on New Year's Eve at the Australian Embassy in Washington, D.C. with a girl that I met that fucking day. So New Year's Eve going from 92 to 93, I meet this girl that day. Later that night, we're at this party. And this is a, I'm, I mean, this is three blocks away from my dope hole. I'm on Mass Avenue, 16th Street, and I cop a 14th down in that area. I didn't look or resemble that guy, but I knew I couldn't get shake it off. So I'm not having drinks. So she starts drinking. We're dancing. She's cute. Midnight, we start making out. And I'm tasting whatever she's drinking, bourbon. Plenty of it. She, I'm having her drink more, and, and we're next thing you know, I'm doing shots of tequila with a couple of fucking like Navy SEAL type guys at the end of the bar. I say to her, "I need to get some cigarettes. I will be right back." So in my suit and tie, I jump into my Nissan 240SX. I go to CVS. I get a ten pack of syringes. Run over to 14th or probably 9th and O is where it was. I get two number four Delauders get back in the car, run to the embassy, valet park my car, run into the most elaborate, beautiful men's room I've ever had this luxury of shooting dope in. And they're in suit and tie with this pretty girl waiting for me. I'm, you know, getting off again. So I went from clean to making out, basically using, just drinking Johnny Walker out of her. Mm -hmm. And then within two hours, I got a needle in my arm. This is in 93, 92 to 93. That was my first real experience with like, a relapse. Like a real relapse, like where it was like, what the fuck? But the problem was, and the, the biggest, the worst thing about that whole thing was that nothing really happened. Like no consequence mm-hmm. came. Swift. Yeah, you wake up the next day and you're yeah, like, oh, man, that, that was a little day, stupid, but and whatever. And sti- we were still together, and it was stupid, but was it stupid? Look, everything worked out. I, hey, I probably, you know, fuck those people that were at the treatment center, they're a bunch of idiots. All that crazy stuff the disease wants me to believe while it's just rooting in even deeper. So sure, you know, within a few weeks, I was back at the same treatment center. So February, I'm back in that wow. same treatment center now with a different attitude. And now the revolving door starts. So now you now it just the, the rest of the 90s was just six weeks in, three weeks out. And then three weeks in and four weeks out. I was just in and out of treatment, jail, out on the street. It was just this in and out, in and out, in and out. And then December 12th, 98, which was yesterday, my dad passed away. Once he passed away, he was kind of like the only like real anchor of, he was like the barometer, sort of like the compass for me. Once he, he passed, I took a whole nother header. Then it was, you know, still again, it was just all the debauchery and hospital visits. They threatened to amputate de- different parts of my body on several occasions. I had endocarditis. I mean, all those consequences were common, and but the obsession wouldn't leave. I never could be pinned down long enough for the obsession to lift. Mm-hmm. 
And so I'd come out of treatment, I, three days, I'd hold my breath and I'd be right back out. And I'd come out of jail three days later. You know, it was just, And that's really what it takes is just to be pinned down long enough for yeah. you to like, because a lot of times our families are like, what's, what's it going to take? Right, 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 like, right. Uh, it's really no way out of it. No, until that, until 10, 11, 03, two things lined up. One, all the stars aligned. For that night and then that morning i remember i ran through 300 dollars worth of coke dope within because i copped it and you were homeless at this point i had a place but i, I didn't want to leave the spot so there was this abandoned building right off of newton place where everyone kind of but it was october it was getting cold but i just remember that that day started out early and i hadn't had anything all day and then finally at 2 a.m i got a hold of 300 dollars and i copped the next thing you know, it was 6.20, and I was being woke up by a police officer in that abandoned building. But there was nothing for him to arrest me for. There was not a bag of dope or nothing. I, I ran through all of it in the two or three hours, but I did have, luckily, a bench warrant in Maryland. So he arrested me, and basically, at that point, I weighed 137 pounds, I was had open abscesses and sores all over me. I'd been arrested more than 30 times. You know, all I had academically was that GED that I got by accident when I dropped out of school. You know, I was unemployable, the whole heroin addicted, crackhead, junkie, loser, liar, the whole package. There was nothing to live for, to look forward to. Thank God that God sent him through there. He put that handcuff on my left wrist, and I was a heroin-addicted crackhead junkie. And as soon as he clicked that second handcuff on me, the handcuffs themselves, a power greater than Ray, mm-hmm. began the process of restoration of sanity. At that moment, I could no more ingest chemicals. And once I stopped ingesting chemicals, it says in, also in the literature, the first thing we do in this program is stop using drugs, period. That's a sentence. Then we begin to, to feel the pain of living without the use of those drugs. And it's the pain that, the pain that forces us to seek the power greater. So pain is something to be embraced, and people don't understand it. Not just in NA, but any, grab any spiritual text from any of the disciplines. Always you'll see that pain is like the, the, the admission price of the turnstile that takes you to the next plateau of that path. Mm-hmm. So without the pain, I mean, it's easy to run from pain. If you're, if you use narcotics for 20 years, you don't deal with pain. You just know how to get rid of it. You're drinking. So that's the, that's why th- step three is so hard because the pain comes instead of just walking through it, it's easier to medicate it. And so the cop brought me in and I spent that, uh, the first three months just kind of there hot showers you know, and just eating whatever I could get my hands on and just angry. I was just so fucking angry. All right? And I just couldn't shake it off. And um, eventually I started to read a little bit just to get out of my cell. I joined the treatment program that was in the jail, but then they would let us go out in the library. I remember getting John Grisham's The Street Lawyer, and I brought it back to my wow. cell. And it took me, I couldn't read it. I couldn't get past the 10th page because I couldn't remember the last nine pages. So I took a yellow pad, just like this one here, and I started writing the names of the characters and who they were. And it took me a couple of months, man. I read that whole book cover to cover, word for word. The next book, I did it in like three weeks. 
And then the next book, I did it in a week. And then before you know it, I went like, by the time I left jail, I had like three different of these paperback novels at various stages. Mm-hmm. But what it demonstrated to me was without my permission, without even trying to get clean or be clean or want to get clean, my body didn't need my permission to do what it needed to do to fix itself. My memory started coming back. Also, by playing cards with my celly for push-ups, I, you know, by the time I left jail, I could do 50 push-ups, wait 30 seconds, do another 50, wait 30 seconds, do another 50, wait 30. Like, I was a beast. But when I got there, the first night that I had to do a push-up, man, it took, like, every ounce of my energy just to crank out the third one. I don't think I even was able to push the third one out. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was the evidence of recovery. Even though I didn't, I wasn't even participating in my recovery. I didn't want to hear about recovery. I didn't want to hear shit about it. I didn't even want recovery. But just the absence of heroin and crack and, and eating healthily and bathing and just doing some push-ups and not spending all day on the day room watching stupid-ass fucking <laughs> reruns of Oprah or Dr. Phil, I got better. I couldn't deny it. It was, a, it was an undeniable recovery. It was happening whether I liked it or not. And when I got to reentry and Bunny uh, Buzzwell, she goes, what you going to do now, Raimondo? What you going to do now? I said, well, Bunny, you know, I'm going to get a home group and a sponsor. Da, 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 da. She says, Bermondo, you and me both know you're going to be in that spoon before half past noon. And I was like, what the fuck? I just, I got 10 and a half months clean. You know it. And I'm doing great. I feel great. And then she suggested, why don't you go to that treatment center? The one that I've been to since 92. I've been to that place at least 10 times. And you're going to recommend, suggest to me after 10 and a half months clean, me, Ray Googs, you want me to go back to that, to detox? I got clean. Why the fuck would I want to do that? It, it was illogical. My knee-jerk reaction to life-saving information was like to argue with this lady. Mm-hmm. You know what? Fortunately, mm-hmm. I made the first real life-saving decision was to shut the fuck up and just say, okay, I'll take the bed. Because I knew she knew and I knew that she was right. Like the truth is what set me free. The truth was she was fucking right. So I took the bed and I accumulated another 30 days of uninterrupted clean time. There's the magic. And fortunately, I had a warrant now. The judge ordered me back to Avery Road for another 30 days. So now I had another, now I had the 10 and a half months from the jail, the 30 days there. And then the judge sends me for another 30. What I'm doing is accumulating clean time and healing. Then the next plateau was, why don't you go to the, the Phoenix program over in Arlington? Why the fuck would I want to do that? <laughs> I'm ready. I need an apartment. I need a job. I got to get on with my life. Yeah. But what life? So what I do, I went. I, and then they treated me like a day one dingbat. And they called me that. You sit in the front. If we want to hear from you. I'm like, I'm like I got third, I got almost a year clean. You know, talk to me like that. Yeah, there's the door. Pack your shit and get the fuck out or do what we tell you to do. So... And there's a level of like, a lot of times people wonder, like, how do some people stay clean and some people don't? A lot of times I believe at the end of the day, it's just straight obedience. Well, I just had to swallow my pride Mm -hmm. and just, and, but it was always the truth. The truth was if I walk out that door, I know what's going to happen. It was no more negotiating with that one. And even after I had accumulated some clean time at that program, I was asked to be the strength to take another guy out for, to the social security department. And when the lady asked me to do this, I looked at the guy, he was this big black guy. He just did seven years in the feds. And I was thinking me and him, I'm going to be strength for him. Me and him are going to get, we're going to leave here. We're going to go down to the social security office in DC and come back here. You think that's really going to happen? You're out of your fucking, like, I couldn't believe that I had a year clean. And she said, you're going to do it. Here's your bus passes. Here's your, this, here's your, that, your stipend for lunch. And then, 
we leave. The next day, we go. And I'm like, I know I'm getting high. Like, I know I'm going to get high. And we're at the bus stop in front of Starbucks, getting ready to start the journey. And I say to this guy, hey, man, you want a coffee or something? He goes, no. And he's frozen like a statue. I go, look, I'm going to go in there. And he stopped me. And I go, dude, it's right there. I'm just going to get a shot of espresso. They could, they could even talk. It's right there. And the guy just was frozen. He was like just glaring at me. And he pulls the pass out of his pocket. And he says these magic words. It don't say nothing about no Starbucks on this pass. And I'm like, are you out of your, are you fucking kidding me? Like, who's going to know? And all that dope fiendy, slimy dope fiend. But he was right. We were supposed to go from A to B and B to A. And you know what? That's what we did. And guess what? That night in group at uh, Process, I was like, my name's Ramondo. I'm an addict. Hey, Ray. I want to announce to me. Stanley went to Social Security. We came back clean, safe, and sober. And the whole fucking room erupted in clapping. But the most surprised person out of everybody in that room was me. I couldn't even fucking believe that it actually happened. But that was a little milestone. And, you know, and then I left there with no plan. And my brother just happened to be here in Hollywood. And I hadn't spoken to him for years. And I called him and he said, well, you sound all right. Get on a bus. Come down here. We'll figure it out. And so I've been down here ever since. I got here February 1st, 05, with nothing. You know, the, the classic dirty duffel bag with the dirty clothes. Although I had put on some weight, and I felt pretty good, but no direction and no goals and no vision. Nothing. Like, what am I going to do? 40-something years old, totally as washed up as you can be. There was nothing to look forward to, you know? And I had nothing. I didn't have any credit. I didn't have, I didn't even, I had nothing. I was just like a fucking, a baby coming out of the, just literally. like. But I did meet a couple of people right away that invited me to their home group down at the beach. And, and J-Mo, I'll give him mm-hmm. a shout-out. And Marisa, I'll give you a shout-out too. But they're both my friends. are still clean. But I remember going to that meeting, and while I was there, we had this big business meeting where we cooked a bunch of food, and then they had their business meeting. It ended. It got dark, and we walked out to the beach. And I was in one of those little short leg chairs with my feet in the sand. I'm smoking cigarettes and this girl sitting next to me and the ocean was flat like glass and the moon was just hanging there just right and, and it was glistening over the water. And man, and I was feeling good and I was clean and everything. And this guy next to me is reading like how it works. So, you know what I mean? It was like, I'm at a meeting. Like I'm at a fucking NA meeting. Only it's not in a dingy church basement. And I feel good about this. And then I remember suddenly realizing that if this is all I have to do, if, like if I die right now, if this is all I got to come up Not with. Not too bad. Yeah, I could, I'm good with this. Mm-hmm. After then, my whole like crappy life flashed before my eyes, and I couldn't understand how I even ended up there. And I was like, fuck, how could I not be grateful? Like, more gratitude came over me, just over, like, I can do this. Like, I don't have to impress anyone. I never have to come up with another thing. This is all I got to do. And uh, what a place to do it. And then, you know, life comes on. And eventually, uh, I didn't know what, what to do. And I went to a spiritual retreat. I took a chance. I, went, I drove down to the Keys with eight NA guys. Knowing we're going to get arrested. Like, I knew something bad's going to happen. I had this fear in me. It was like a constant paranoia that, some, that something terrible was going to happen. We went and nothing terrible happened. And we made it back. And I met this lady named Tony down there. And she was a high school teacher over here in Miami. So what we, we swapped numbers. That was the end of that. But then fast forward to July 05, I was trying to get a job as a dishwasher over at Mama Foo's. And I go in there, bathed, cleaned, 17 months, uninterrupted clean time, alert, 
ready to work. And I say to the guy, hey, man, can you give me a job? I'll take the dishwasher gig. And this guy looks at me up and down. He like, he sized me up. He's like, you know, it's, uh, it was like six eighty an hour. And I was thinking, well, okay. <laughs> okay, I need a job. And then he goes to 7, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I was like, all right, well, okay, I'll take that too because I can still make it to the 8 and to the 10. And then he goes, well, um, and, and then he asked me if I had any experience. I'm like, are you fucking kidding? To wash your scrub, your paint, you want to, like, I'm not applying for some corporate job here. I'm just, like, wanting to wash some, I couldn't understand, like, why I was even going through this. And when he said to me, listen, brother, here, write me down your phone number. I'm going to run it by my partner and we'll get back to you. When he said those words to me, I'm thinking, you know, that was my, my Lieutenant Dan, like, what the fuck's really going on? Like, no one's going to be able to answer. Like, I, I should be able to get this job with a needle hanging out of my neck. Mm-hmm. But I'm clean. So then that day was my third step day. That day in front of Starbucks, it was just me and God. There was no one. I was like, why did I go through everything I've been through? And you bring me to this place that I actually like. I'm trying to get the most humblest fucking job there is. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm not taking anything away. I just want to wash some fucking dishes. And I couldn't, under, I couldn't grapple with, like, why? Am I that useless? Like, even clean? That I can't even amount to that? And to that? What the fuck? And fortunately, God was not granting me my wish. Thank God. He said, Ray, I love that you're coming up with these fucking pathetic ideas, but I've got a much better plan for you. I just wanted to see if you're even willing to do that dumb shit. So he slammed that door in my face just to get my attention. And I'm telling you, man, I cried like a baby sitting in front of Starbucks trying to figure out, like, what the hell's wrong? Like, what's really going on? And um, a peace came over me again. I was like, look, I didn't need your help to get you clean. I don't need your help to get keep you clean. I need you to get out of my way and let me be God. You be Ray. Go breathe and go to the fucking beach. Let me handle the rest. And when that, that came as a wave, like I, I was like, yeah, why am I, what am I fucking sweating, man? And, you know, every, all the gratitude of I'm not dope sick. That's all I ever really wanted. Then God came at me like, what, do I fucking owe you something now? Like, I don't owe you shit. You're lucky you're not even dope sick. Mm -hmm. So once I eased into that, that was turning my, I basically came to, at that moment, it was that reckoning of take my will in my life, guide me in my recovery, and and fucking show me how to fucking live because this ain't going to work. Like, I don't know what the fuck else to do. A week later, me and Tony were sitting in front of the same Starbucks. Just by, she ran into me there. It's right, almost the same fucking chair. She goes, so I told her my story. She goes, you ever thought about taking some classes? And that was the same as telling me, um, what you going to do now, Raimondo? I was like, taking some classes? I need a fucking job. What the fuck? You know, to me, it was like that my knee-jerk reaction to that was, that's preposterous. Like, that's the stupidest suggestion you could make, you know? Because I had nothing else. I gave her 10 reasons why it wouldn't work. But she literally took me by the hand over to Broward College. And somehow, within four hours, I was enrolled, placed, honors English. She had the Pell Grant and the scholarship. And the GD was being shipped from Baltimore to write electronically. And the, this was happening. I was like, what the fuck just happened? And, uh, and then Bobby T and Ronnie, mm-hmm. they were working at a treatment center that was about to open another treatment center we need a tech and um all of a sudden i had more hours than i knew what to do with and then the pavilion called and i was there so now i had within like a week's time i I was enrolled in college in four classes and working at three different treatment centers and couldn't even explain to you how it even happened and i've been kind of doing it ever since until uh more recently so uh 
Yeah, but that was the transition. I had nothing to do with it. I like yeah. to sit here and tell you, I did this and I did that. I really I haven't done anything. I mean, you're pretty humble when you talk about school, but I remember when you spoke when you had five years. So I was just getting clean in 2008. And I remember seeing you get up there and um, like sometimes some speakers just play your song. And I remember you sharing about the crack pipe being this big. <laughs> and when you made that like two inch, you know, indention of like what a two inch crack pipe looks like, I was just like, oh my God, because I've been clean a couple months. I haven't thought about the end of smoking crack in a while, right? And when the crack pipe is two inches or an inch long and it's burning you and you got to put electrical tape on one end and you're, you know, pushing it back and forth and you got 17 chores that you're trying to put together to get a little hit out and you're contemplating, you know, laying in front of a, a train, like that really hit me. And I was, and I remember thinking like, this guy knows what the fuck he's talking about. I remember thinking like this guy, Ray, was really out there. And I remember, you know, you lifted up your arms and you were like, look, I got track marks all up and down my body, you know? And and it was said in a way where it was just so genuine that nobody would make this shit up. And like, sometimes you watch a movie and someone's smoking a cigarette and you could just tell they don't smoke a cigarette, yeah, right. right? You're just like, this is just bullshit. I see you know? with barbers on TV all the yeah. time. I know instantly that they don't, they don't cut hair. Right? They, they I, I can tell in yeah. three seconds. And it's the same way with addicts. Like I can meet someone and be like, oh, he's full of shit or, or whatever. But like, there was just something about you that was so genuine that like when you started talking, I just remember honing in and listening and be like, bro, this guy's about to say something that, that, that's important. Because what he's saying is just speaking to me. You shared this story. And I remember when you said you had five years clean. And at that point, I was still confused whether or not I could drink or not. Drinking was part of recovery or you couldn't drink. And you said that, you know, I'd rather drink a, a shot of Drano, gasoline, and bleach yeah. before I ever take a shot of Johnny Walker ever again. And, and I remember you said, like, there's some dignity in dying from a poison overdose than dying in a fucking Dunkin' Donuts bathroom with a needle on my arm. Like, I'd rather die clean from some poison than to ever use ever again. Yeah, I remember. That's th There's a recording of that out there mm -hmm. somewhere, but... And I don't encourage... Drinking Drano. Right. So let's make that perfectly clear. But no, but there was it's more predictable way to go. I mean, if I had this if I had four finger shot of Johnny Walker in front of me and a four finger shot of Clorox, they're both gonna I, both of those are gonna put me in somebody's hospital. What one's gonna be a lot more humane about it because it's the predictability of it. If I drink Clorox, I will convulse and foam at the mouth within two or three minutes. You will call nine one one or ignore me right away. I'll either get the help I need or I won't. And it all, it's all going to end within two or three hours, which is more humane than if I do that four-finger shot of Johnny Walker, listen, man, the demons in, that are going to be unleashed, it's going to be a scorched earth. And I'm not the only one getting hurt then. Who knows when, how, or if it's ever going to end. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I don't encourage one over the other, but... In being a realist, the truth is for a guy like me, not for anyone else or for anybody else in my story, I know that uh, and, and I don't want to be in that predicament. And I don't because I'm cautious about who I'm around or where I don't wrestle with that obsession. I just I haven't. Thank God the obsession hasn't returned. But I also am very cautious about people, places and things. So but and I remember at the end of your story, like I was just up there and I was just thinking like, if this guy can do it, I can do it. And like, that was the first time I had that feeling of like, if this guy can do it, I can do it. And I felt it in my whole spirit. Like, 
this can happen for me. <laughs> like this might be a real thing that happens to people. And when you said that you had five years clean, and I knew that included not drinking, five years, I could not believe that someone who was shooting dope and coke as a career for 20 plus years that has track marks till today. Like to me, the track marks like was more impressive than anything else. Like I was just <laughs> like, that's gnarly, you know? Because as an addict, you see that. As an addict, I look at people's veins, you know, I, I see things. To me, I'm like, you know, to me, that's how I measure whether someone was using or not. Or at least back then I did, right? Because that's all I focused on. But when you said that you were working on your second bachelor's degree, yeah. I was 17 years old and I was scared to go to night school to finish high school. And I was thinking I can't go back to school uh, I haven't been good at school lately. I've been all fucked up on drugs. I missed so many classes. And when you said that you were working on your second bachelor's degree, I was like, get the fuck out of here. Mm. Like this guy went back to school and not just got one bachelor's degree, but is working on his second one. And then you said, who knows? Fuck it. This time next year, I might be in law school. <laughs> and when you said that it was 2008, and I remember just smiling and being like, yeah, wow, right. like <laughs> heroin to law school, you know? And um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, well, that happened then. But I do, by the way, I remember that meeting. It was at the West Broward. I was sitting next to Abraham. And yep. I even remember that in Burning Desire, you shared. And I remember you thinking, I'm pretty sure you said that you appreciated everything I had to say, but that you were going to be able to sell weed successfully, but you weren't going to smoke it or something like that made me laugh mm -hmm. and do one of those, yeah, let me know how that works out yeah. for you, kid, kind of comments, which mm -hmm. probably pissed you off or something. But I do remember exactly like where I was sitting. I can picture exactly where you were sitting, and uh, I do remember all that. And I do remember... Um, you know, making those bold ass statements like, oh, I remember even at Broward, before I even started, I was like, if I can't be a doctor or a lawyer, I'm not even doing this shit. <laughs> but because <laughs> I didn't want to waste any time, but it was so wow. far fetched. Look, it, the whole it's concept crazy. is so, because it was so crazy. I didn't think I was going to get through algebra. Like, I was going to, I was doing it for the couple of bucks that they were going to throw at me. You know, the time did come where I had the two bachelor's degrees and I was prepping for the LSAT. And, you know, um, I ended up applying to FIU and I couldn't get in. That door closed. So sometimes God will slam a very obvious door to get you to look somewhere else. And it forced me to look at schools up in D.C. I thought if I am going to go to law school, D.C. would be a place to do it. But my track record in D.C. is that, you know, I'm a, that persona, I was scared to go. But, you know, I, I ended up applying to, to a couple of schools. UDC called and I took the spot. But the bigger picture was that God also was watching my son grow up, so who was in another country who I hadn't seen since he was three. But now, fast forward, the kid's 18 years old. And so as I'm getting accepted to UDC, he's getting accepted to George Mason University right across the river wow. from my school. And his stepdad— What was it like going to law school? Law school was—it was like going to junior high school, but with sensitive people. <laughs> it was like going to drink. It was like all bullies and all really sensitive bullies that you can't even bully them back because they'll cry. <laughs> it was very, it was the hardest in socio, in the social dynamic. It was so difficult. What and everybody's drunk or high. Everybody from all, everybody. On Adderall. 
or or al- I mean, there's alcohol at every event. Like, hey, mm-hmm. hey, uh, hey, Ray, did you hear that the Federal Society, the Constitution Society, are having a a debate on the third floor? Come on, free Chipotle. So you run up there, and there's like a half a burrito, like in this back of some box. Mm-hmm. But then there's like four cases of Coronas on ice. So it's all about you know. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of camaraderie around it. Matter of fact, one of the uh, soror fraternities, they're built around bar review, meaning every Friday night they go to a bar, they get hammered, and then they review they, it. Yeah. So drinking culture is there. So being so, sober or clean, it was a little tricky, but it was a lot of work. Let me tell you, man, the, the work involved, that level of work to get an A in undergrad, buys you a C in law school. Wow. You really got to work, and there's no getting around it. And there's really, I never got groveled for a grade. If I got a C, I got a C. All through my, from day one through law school. But law school was intense that, you know, it, it challenged me more than I ever been challenged. But I didn't miss any meetings. There was meetings right down the street. But the, the best part about probably law school was that, A, my son and I reunited in D.C., but and that which is which is miraculous, which is a whole nother story in and of itself, you know. But then I came to terms with who I was. The only person. How, how was it reuniting with your son? It was kind of cool because we finally decided to meet at a, at Tyson's Mall, and I said oh, I'll be there at has, a certain time. Has he tried to reach out to you during these years, or have you tried to well, reach out Facebook. to him? Somehow on Facebook we connected. But he was a little kid, so it was just real friendly stuff, and it, we started to get to know each other. Eventually. He got accepted to school, and his stepdad got a job at Georgetown University. So these two guys were coming to, to D.C., and I was going to D.C. all at the same time. But it was like a— A God thing, it of was course, all, because right, you all, were thinking about going to FIU. Right, 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 right. So then I ended up at UDC, which really, I had access to all the law libraries in D.C. with my ID. I could go to Georgetown. I could go to Catholic. I could go to the—it was like a carte blanche to use any library. So it was it was a different version of me. The last version of me in D.C. was a, a, the 137-pound hair addicted crackhead over on Georgia Avenue at 4200 Georgia Avenue. Now I was this you know card-carrying law student at 4200 Connecticut Avenue, which they, these two streets run parallel. So the contrast was there, but I never. My first semester, I I almost camped out in the school. I was afraid to get on the subway because there was two stops that were too familiar. Mm-hmm. So that first semester was pins and needles. And I warmed up, I warmed up, but when they gave me my little learner's permit to do my clinicals, I did one in the juvie clinical. I did it through the summer, but then the next semester I got one to do the criminal stuff, and I was at the D.C. Superior Courthouse. And let me tell you something, man. On my clean date, I got arraigned in courtroom C-10 at the wow. D.C. Superior Court. My very first assignment at that courthouse was in courtroom C-10 at an arraignment. And so here we are now, 10 years later, because I got to D.C. in 2012. I got clean in 2003, but let me, and I was clean. And I was, you think I put in a lot of work and all this growth and stuff, but I had a, I went in to meet my client. My first client walked. I met her down in the bullpen that morning at like 5 a.m. And before she even got upstairs, the, the prosecutors had dismissed her case. So I thought I was going home. And my boss says, why don't we go up to the courtroom and see if there's anybody left? I meet, so she goes, yeah, there's one guy, go interview him. So I had to interview him in the bullpen behind the judge's bench. And I'm telling you, as soon as that 
Marshall opened that door and that smell of, of bleach and urine, it's like a time capsule. It hit me and it triggered some PTSD type stuff where I started sweating and getting like discombobulated. It was crazy, man. All I know is I went in, I started trying to interview this guy and he's talking to me and like, I had this and this and all these people are yelling, can you do this? And then I was like, I didn't know, I don't know how to even describe it. it it was just chaos and confusion. And I remember just looking at the guy. I was like, look, I'm going to do what I can. So I went outside, and I tried to regroup, but I couldn't catch my breath. I was, like, fucking freaking out. And my supervisor standing next to me. They brought my client out in shackles, and the judge said something, and the prosecutor said something, and I said something, and something else was said, and it was done. You know, she slapped me on the back. She was like, great job. And, you know, he got stepped back. He had, like, crazy warrants. That was the end of it. I walked down into the hallway and I just sat on one of those old wooden benches. D.C. Superior Courthouse is huge. It's an amazing place. But I was just fucking numb. And I called my friend Dave, who's a therapist down here. And I told him the whole experience. He was like, he started laughing like, man, you just had like a full on like PTSD meltdown, man. And you did it in front of everybody. And I was like, well, what does that mean? He goes, well, yeah, you did it. It's over. And I, and I didn't know what he meant until next week when I had to go do it again. Only I didn't sweat. I didn't shake. I didn't nothing. I had to walk through this crazy like portal where I transformed from defendant to defender, it was a, it literally happened. That so from that moment on, I, you know, it was like a shift, some kind of wrinkle in in the space. I, I and time. wanted to ask you, so you know, when you were going to law school and even going to college, I remember you saying that you wanted to go to law school. And it was almost like a joke. It was, and with a record. And, you know, your history, there must have been so many people saying that it would yeah, never happen. Yeah, it never worked. Don't do it. Don't waste your time. It's a waste Just of time. Don't do it. And yeah. I remember, so I wanted to go to law school. And I remember I was uh, studying to take the LSATs and I was like nervous. And I remember you said, oh, hey, I got, I got a 163 and I got two brain cells. You got to have at least three, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and you really inspired me to go to school because... Even though I was young and, and going to school around like a normal age where people go to school, there, there's just something where like when you use drugs and you've been in like those situations that like, you know, I share that you can take 100 showers and you don't feel clean sure. and years can go by. And, you know, I, I look like some of the other kids, but like I just feel shame. And there's a lot of shame that doesn't go away mm -hmm. no matter how long you've been clean. You just feel different, you yeah. know, which is why I love going to meetings because the only place I don't feel that you know right so what was it like you know with all the naysayers and people telling you couldn't you, do it you know i just i don't know i just kind of didn't i blocked it out. i used to remember always when it came to loans or student finances i had never had a problem peeling a hundred dollar bill off and handing it to some guy for a bag of whatever like i, I wasn't gonna now cut myself off from getting some education money i wasn't gonna let block me my record I said, if it blocks me at the end, it doesn't. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, I just got to just do what I got to do what's in front of me. And that was bringing some NA principles to it. My job isn't to determine outcomes. My job is to do what's in front of me and let God does the rest. So applying that principle to my life was like, I just got to show up for class. And, and then, ironically, CJ, traveler, mm -hmm. whatever, years ago, I was of at course. a meeting. I was at a meeting coming out of Biscayne campus. And I couldn't memorize what I needed to. And I was ready to quit school. And I was at that meeting, and he shared that, man, my sponsor told me to read some thunk out of the basic. He was speaking at uh, Ives Dairy Road. He was the mm -hmm. main speaker. And he shared that 
he finally confronted his sponsor and said, listen, I've been reading what you told me to read, but I can't remember any of it. And I'm done. I'm not going to read anymore. And, he, and then he said, my sponsor said to me, did I ask you to remember it? The assignment wasn't to remember the, what I told you. The assignment was to read how it works. The assignment was to read who's an addict. The assignment wasn't to remember or memorize any of that shit. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why when CJ said that, it hit me that my assignment was to just read from page 27 to 42. God's going to decide what I need to remember. And once I adopted that at Biscayne campus on my undergrad, mm-hmm. I, fi- I still live by that. I just read everything. Then Judge Pryor, who God rest his soul, he just passed away recently. He was, a, he was on the D.C. Court of Appeals. He taught me criminal law. And I asked him, Judge Pryor, in his office. He's an awesome guy, man. This guy, um, he was appointed by Robert F. Kennedy back when he was a student. back in this. So he was big in that. But he said to me, Ray, I read a case three times. The first time I just read it. I don't do, I just let my eyes touch all the words. I wait about a half an hour. I go back and I read it with a highlighter. I just make some highlights and circles. And then I leave it alone for about an hour. And then the third time is where I analyze it. And then I just started applying that method. But uh, so little tricks like that. And I bring that to the basic text back and forth. But I, I will say a couple of funny things. One thing about law school was that because of my past, I'm not, you can't really hurt my feelings. That, I mean, it takes a lot. And I think that a lot of the brightest and most capable individuals at orientation, the ones that really were super smart, they washed out because they got their feelings hurt. Wow. And those of us who were a little more tough, when the professor chews you out or calls you out, you could take it. So part of surviving law school was just surviving the the beratements that came. But that was to toughen you up and to weed out. But what's, what are you going to say to me for Professor Romano? I thought you were supposed to read, uh, you know, the Twombly case. Well, guess what? <laughs> After about seven hours of reading, I ran out of steam, boss. And yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. What, are you going to hurt my feelings? Is that the best you got? You know, hurt your feelings is when you, you've been spending uh, $20 a clip all day long with the same dope boy, and then you show up to him with $9, and he says you come back with straight money at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's what humiliation is. Mm-hmm. So the stick to itiveness, the sitting in the front, taking the notes, asking the stupid questions, and showing up. My first thing, one thing that I knew I was where I was supposed to be when I got to UDC was at orientation, they gave us three books that we had to read, mandatory just to make it through orientation. And one of the three books was John Grisham, The Street Lawyer. Wow. Yeah, so wow. when I when they handed me that book, I was like, dude, I did this book not only inside and out and backwards. I, I read this book sentence by sentence and took fucking notes on it. And then I eventually ended up living, doing, like, in that book, there's a scene where he, the attorney in that case, is down at the CCNV, the Center for mm-hmm. Grave Night Violence, filling out people's applications for different social services. I did that. I ended up going down there and doing that. So, What is it like uh, being in law school and, and being an attorney and having other people that have no experience with the judicial system? Because I understand, because the way that it plays out in a book is not the way it plays out in real life. Yeah, yeah. So you must have like real life experiences versus like what these other kids in your class that are probably half your age are just philosophizing. Well, and that was the thing. And then some of them went on to teach. Some of them go on to be politicians. Some of them just get the feather in their caps. But I remember my one friend, he got an internship for the summer at the at a prosecutor's office in 
Prince George County, Maryland. And when he gave his rendition of how it went to us, he was like, he couldn't believe his first day where they brought the inmates in. And he was like, they were actually shackled their heads and their <laughs> and their ankles like animals. And, th- and I was like, you know, he was the first time he ever saw it, but I couldn't judge the guy. He mm-hmm. just didn't know. But never seen it. It's like it'd be like me walking into a probate court. I don't even know what the fuck they're talking about. Wills, trusts, and what? Estates. So to me, that was a foreign world, you know what I mean? Uh, so you cover a lot of ground in law school. You really, uh, but I had to focus. Everything was on that. I went to meetings because I had a couple of home groups close by there that I frequented during my relapse years. The trick then was to get to pass the fucking bar. Mm-hmm. And then the trick was to get through my background check, yeah. which, you know, you and I both know this all happened. It's materialized since. But at each uh, juncture, it was a whole new battle or not even a battle. It was just more patience. My life has been just, God, I don't know what he's, he's teaching me just to be patient. I mean, that's all I could get out of it is that I, when I passed the bar finally, Obviously, it was kind of anticlimactic by the time that happened. It was like I already been working with a lot of different attorneys and lawyers and clients. So, yeah, I got that. But when I uh, was going to meet with the bar panel for my ethics and my background, COVID came on. So then even the bar got shut down. So, like, everything got delayed Delayed. even longer. So here I was, a guy who I passed the bar, but I couldn't get my ticket and so, but what did I do? I mean, I didn't shoot dope and smoke crack over it, and I'm not going to, I'm not even going to be disappointed. I, I went way far. I was supposed to not pass algebra. Mm-hmm. So I definitely overshot my mark. I can't complain. All that buildup, I got an email that finally said, we're going to have a Zoom interview with you on Friday, such and such a date. And I Zoomed in. I had my best tie, nice shirt. Mm-hmm. I had my camera set up a certain way. that There was a bunch of books behind me and all. <laughs> but, you know, uh, there was five attorneys and then the person taking the notes, the stenographer or whatever. And the, each of them took, you know, their pock shots. It was like they took your inventory for however long. My past, I laugh about it. It's not that it's funny, but I've turned most corners on it, regardless of who I'm talking to. Once I can get them to laugh too, it's like we've all turned a corner on mm-hmm. it. And that's what I had. I had them all laughing and shit, and it was kind of funny and not funny. And they, I answered every single one of their questions, and then that was it. You know, they were very, at the end, kind of real stone-faced, and that was it. Thanks for cooperating. Thank you. And then when did you find out? Like two days later. Two days later. Well, Friday, so Saturday, Sunday, nothing. Monday, Tuesday, I get an email. Congratulations. Here's your login information to the Florida Bar website, blah, blah, blah. So I waited, however, 18 months for a six-hour meeting. Was it, was it, yay, it was for about a day. And then some other, as soon as I was happy or yay some about that. Some other shit comes along. Instantly something else happens. Like my brother called me from, I'm retiring early. Something's going on. I'm like, so we're not, you know, I didn't really get much of a celebration time. But that's fine. I mean, but that's another thing. So. Well, I just want you to know that, you know, seeing your whole journey, go to school, get multiple degrees, go to law school, you know, accomplish what you've accomplished and become an attorney it's like a big win for addicts yeah because like for me like when i see addicts winning and accomplishing their goals my goal in life is to explain the difference between abstinence and recovery because what you're doing is not uh from abstinence this is from going to meetings working the steps believing in your dreams and accomplishing something so you can have a life beyond anything you've ever imagined which is, you know, what you have right now. Like to say that you're an attorney where like I was a career, 
you know, opiate addicted crackhead and now I'm an attorney is something that even telling some of the most recovery orientated therapists or whatever seems like a crazy, unrealistic goal. Most people would tell you to, you know, shoot for something a little lower. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you stuck with it wasn't overnight, 10 plus 12 years later, that it is so commendable. And, And just prior to all that shit, like what you've done for my recovery Till today, I tell everybody, like, bro, I didn't think I could stay clean until I heard this fucking guy Ray speak. And I heard this guy speak one time, 17 years old. This one guy spoke. And it's uh, how amazing, like, the universe works where, like, you just happened to be speaking that night. Abraham asked you to speak, and I was just happened to be there. And I was clean long enough to hear it where I heard it. And, and like, as soon as I heard the message, I couldn't unhear it. You know what I mean? Like, like once you hear it the first time, you're just like yeah god damn and uh and there's some things you can't go back from in recovery like you can't pedal back from crack like there's some times where your life changes that like you can't pedal back from it even clean that it's just like like you're changed and i just want to say thank you man thank you man are you kidding me and i should have gave you more of a shout out to that you know what i got when i did finish school and i came back home to just kind of get my bearings here in florida because, you know, the commute, made, I had a foot in Florida and a foot in D.C., but I had no intentions of staying in D.C. I wanted to do everything here. And, you know, the stars realigned again that walking distance from home, and, you know, you hooked me up to where I could at least have a place to, you know, hitch my uh, little wagon to, mm-hmm. something bigger than me. I can't just be isolated Ray doing things. You know, I got to hitch my wagon to something that's bigger and moving along, and you, you provide, you created which is what we talk about in the traditional time, but we create, provide, and maintain an environment conducive to recovery. Not just because it sounds clever, but that's what we do, and that's what you've done. Thank you. Very fucking successfully. And I know that you're at your age, you're kind of more or less just getting started. Like, if I did what you did, like, now, <laughs> well, it'd be good, but, I, I mean, the time, time is, you know, and I don't have that on my side, but you still have time on your side to even expand further so to not have to pigeon on me yes i have this license and do i even see myself as like this i'm 58 years old i don't have like these like i'm not delusional like oh i'm gonna go out here <laughs> and embark on this crazy legal uh career it wasn't even about the career as much as it was to say that you can't tell me i can't fucking do something you yeah. you can't tell me i can't once you you know i mean you can't so that first, that bachelor's, I remember when you gave me the medallion, you know, you know, my associate's degree was for me because I never finished anything. So yeah, I got an associate's. That, that next bachelor's degree, even after I had it, it felt like a hollow victory because I knew somebody was going to downplay it. Mm-hmm. Oh, big deal. So they gave you one. Good pat on the head, Ray. Good boy. Now go to Dunkin' Donuts and be an assistant manager. Mm-hmm. I knew they would just discount it and disqualify it. I knew I needed to get it, and that's why when I got the, when I f- was focused on getting that second one, it wasn't just about getting two degrees. It was about you can take one away, but you can't take away both. Like you yeah. can't say that the other one was an accident. It's not a fluke. Yeah. It's not a fucking fluke. You know what I mean? And I didn't want this. So for addicts, when that one was literally dedicated and devoted, if I die tomorrow, remember, man, frame it and say for all addicts, that was that. When we do succeed, the outside world can't handle it because we're not supposed to succeed. They, we almost make, we make it look easy. When we're clean and really dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Mm-hmm. We, Unstoppable. We, yeah, and then they get threatened. 
having that pushback just gave me all the more incentive to just get now that I have a license, can I put it to good use? I hope, I swear. I mean, I knew I was going to be a counselor of some sort. Typically, my story would say, shoot dope, smoke crack, get clean, be an addictions counselor. Makes sense. That's like right out of it. But then the playbook said, well, you still get to be a counselor, but we're going to give you a different kind of license. What I'm going to do with it, I swear, you probably have a better imagination of what I can do with it than what I, mm-hmm. I don't even know what I'm going to do with it. I've got a few cases here and there. I've got that. You know, my internship at the PD's office was insane because I got to do, yeah, was with the, you know, the habitual career criminals. We did a lot of heavy cases. So it gave me a taste of what to look forward to. But generally, man, I don't know what's happening next. I don't know what's going to happen next. But I do appreciate you in my life. I love you, man. I love love you you very much. I love what we're doing here. I love what you're doing here. And um, I can't thank you enough for catching me off guard today and inviting me to come over here. I appreciate it. I love you, bro. Happy Sunday. It's always good to see you. And uh, I'm sure people that are listening got a ton of hope out of that, man. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.